0: On today's show, we've got such a great one, Overland co-editor Evelyn Aralowen, who is becoming a regular guest on this show, joins me to discuss the latest edition of Overland, a kind of elegy to health, our lost health, framing the idea of health, wellness and healthcare in the time of COVID-19 and beyond even that asking us to look at institutional failure, uh, pseudo-medical norms and the role of capitalism through and around it all. And soon, on Love, Death and Reading, Tegan Bennett Daylight's essay collection, The Details, examines a reader's relationship with writers and writing a writer's relationship with life and the details of the author's loss and the moments that writing helps examine and perhaps ameliorate.
2: R on FM Digital Online via the app.
0: This is what I want for my students. I want them to read a book all the way through. I want them to find something difficult and do it anyway. Then I want them to notice what a powerful tool literature is to understand that it helps us to know ourselves and the society we live in. Finally, I want them to discover that reading breeds thinking and thinking breeds resistance. And surely, especially right now, that's a good thing. That's an edited extract from Tegan Bennett-Daylight's essay, The Difficulty is the Point, a piece published in her collection, The Details on Love, Death and Reading. I read it out on the show last week and this week I'm very happy to have the author of those words join me today. Tegan Bennett-Daylight, welcome to Backstory.
2: Thanks so much, Mel. It's always lovely to be on Triple
0: R. <laughs> well, I, um, I have to admit something that uh, I read your um, short story collection... And uh, I remember saying to a friend, I just feel like she's my friend. <laughs> so, uh, so sorry to spring that on you, but I think um, no, no,
2: I'm up for it.
0: I'm yeah, for it. <laughs> I, I think that I'm, I'm proposing friendships to, to you officially on air because I like the way you think very much. And, uh, and this Thank essay you. collection very much uh, reinforces that. That sense. I, I want to talk a little bit about it because you've you've kind of um, you've traversed a lot of territory in what is what appears at first to be a slim volume. How did you come to kind of collect these particular essays together?
2: Well, I've been writing. I've been writing the personal essay for quite a long time. It just started to become a mode for me. I'm not entirely sure why. It seemed I had a number of things to say that couldn't quite be said in fiction and after a certain point it's like oh I seem to be accumulating quite a lot of these so I started to sort of put them together loosely and then I realized that I really wanted something that had um, a shape. I'm really interested in structure and collections. I love I'm really happy to read essay collections that aren't particularly structured but I'm quite a girl for a narrative and I remembered back to Six Bedrooms, the short story collection you're talking about, they're anchored by a number of stories about the same character. Mm-hmm. So I constructed this one anchored with the idea of the details and the three. Uh, Details essays that kind of structure the whole thing.
0: Can we talk about the details essays because they do really they they give cohesion as you very rightly pointed out to this to this book and, and make it have a, a sense of a of a complete work which I'm I loved <laughs> uh, because it is okay. it carries you through um, what would otherwise be quite disparate. Thoughts um, and, and gives you a sense of a narrative whole, the, the way a writer's brain works. And this is very much preoccupied with writing, with reading, with engagement between those those elements um, of a writer's and reader's life. Um, but talk about the details themselves. Where do they all come yeah. from? Yeah, well, the
2: idea of the idea of there's three essays that anchor the collection called Detail One, Detail Two, Detail Three, and they sprang from this thing that was sort of gradually gathering in my teaching that came to fruition a few years ago where I realized that what I was mostly saying to students was that the detail was the important thing in what they wrote. So I teach creative writing, so students are always trying to write new stories. One of the things that they often will say to me is I haven't got a story to tell or my life is not original, I have nothing, I don't know what to write about. And I found myself continually saying to them, look, there are only about three or four stories. Originality in plot is not the point, but the point is that the detail belongs to you. So the detail of your life, So you were just telling me on air that you had... Your dog was attacked in the park, and I'm sure you can recall that in extreme detail.
0: Unfortunately, yes. Unfortunately, yes.
2: Yes, and that is you. That's what makes up you, and it's different from all the other times that's happened to people in the park. It's very particular to you and your dog and the other dog in that moment. So I try to tell them that originality lives in them all the time because all of the detail is all about them. And I just have found that uh, that's what I'm most interested in when I read as well, that... I'm I'm the sort of person who doesn't care if somebody tells me what the ending of a story is because I'm not really interested in the ending. Yeah. I'm just interested
0: in the detail. I actually feel somewhat calmer sometimes when I know the ending because then I can enjoy the story more and rather than feeling yeah. anxious about where it's headed. Yeah, yeah. I'm the same. I'm oh, the same. I knew we needed to be friends. Uh, <laughs> now, I, I'm I was particularly taken with the essay. The difficulty is the point, uh, as as you would have guessed by my introduction. Um, yeah. It really spoke to. Uh, to something that that I've I've really struggled to articulate, and and you articulate, articulate it beautifully. You um, you quote uh, Mark Fisher in this in this piece here. Saying, uh, talking about you know trying to entice students to read difficult texts, to sort of engage with with writing that isn't necessarily made to be um, you know easy on the eye or something that you can can whiz through or something that that even is enjoyable necessarily. Um, yeah. There's a quote here. Uh, Fisher says some students want Nietzsche in the same way that they want a hamburger. They fail to grasp, and the logic of the consumer system encourages this misappre- misapprehension that indigestibility, the difficulty is nature. And I, I think this is really the, the essence of this um, of this essay. Can you speak to some of this?
2: Yeah, for sure. So that essay was written after I'd spent um, several years teaching at a regional university, um, teaching education students subjects that tried to increase their literacy through the study of um, Australian literature. And I found over and over again, as I find increasingly with students, that they're not reading very much. And the reason for that is it's so simple. They have phones, and phones are much easier to read than books, and we have all got used to that little dopamine rush that you get when you look at something on your phone, you get a text, you get a message, whatever it is. So they've become less and less able to read complex text. Now, this doesn't make them worse people. It makes them interesting people. They're, they're they're just different. Their brains are being shaped differently. But I did want to try to encourage my students to read things that required them not to get an instant hit of what Mark Fisher calls sugary gratification on demand. I wanted them to know what it felt feels like to do something that's hard and to get through it, because that's a kind of satisfaction and a kind of learning that lasts. It's not just a shot.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you introduce in this essay another of Fisher's concepts, which is this idea of depressive hedonia, where, um, and to quote him again, depression is usually characterised as a state of anhedonia, but the condition I'm referring to is constituted not by an inability to get pleasure so much as it is by an inability to do anything else except Pursue pleasure. And that really spoke to me, particularly at a time now where uh, so much of us, um, so so much is about deprivation, uh, what we cannot do, what we're removed from so that mm-hmm. when we're left to pursue things like reading or um, watching, you know, live stream TV or um, listening to podcasts or whatever else, we're aiming to, to you know, for, we're aiming for pleasurable activities that alleviate yeah. us, alleviate what you know, suffering we're, we're going through.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's really true. And and I'm really conscious every time I speak to one of my friends in Melbourne how your lives are shaped at the moment. And this would not be a time when I would be switching off my phone. I would be looking for as many little shots of pleasure as I could get. So this is not an essay, at, at you know, trying to remove the pleasure that you guys need at the moment. But it is about um, learning to find pleasure in hard work. I was sitting around with my husband and a friend of ours the other day and we were talking about what we did when we were idle, when we were kids. So we're all um, in our late 40s, early 50s. And when we were kids, of course, we the the most sort of digital thing we had was like a tape recorder or a radio. So my husband, because he's a math nerd, played a lot of games with dice and a lot of probability games that he invented for himself. And our friend Jono and me, we just read because when we were bored, there wasn't much else for us to do. And so, in a sense, we became accustomed to the hard work of reading while my husband became accustomed to the hard work of figuring things out. And when you don't have that as your go-to when you're bored, yeah, your brain changes. You're a different kind of
0: person. Mm, It's a really interesting thing and I think particularly important for people who do want to pursue writing or want to challenge themselves that that actually these kinds of brain exercises, I guess, in a way – are really important um, in training you to sort of think about words and to think about how they work. Um, yeah. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. am Mel Cranenberg, and I'm talking to author Tegan Bennett-Daylight about her essay collection, The Details on Love, Death and Reading. There is a I I have to say, I, I used to do a regular segment where I talked to, uh, to authors about uh, a book that they – Found you know that they love or that was particularly um, had a particular impression on them uh, either in their childhood or later on, and so I am slightly obsessed with finding out what writers read, uh, and you have very um, happily <laughs> provided me with uh, a character i hadn 't heard of before in. An essay called "Just Anguish." Uh, Sydney Joseph Perelman is the, the person that you refer to. An essayist, a humorist, if you like, yeah. who is precisely the kind of character that doesn't that doesn't want necessarily to create uh, pieces of writing for everyone, um, but for readers. Uh, can you talk about your your interest, perhaps your influence? This person that has influenced you, which you own.
2: Yeah. Oh, I'd love to, and it's so nicely asked about him. So um, S.J. Perlman, I, I said Perlman for a long time, but I think it might be Perlman. Anyway, let's, let's leave it at that. He was a humorist born at the turn of the um, 19th and 20th century, so in the early 1900s. He was um, an American Jew. He did most of his growing up in New York, and uh, he used to write solely for the New Yorker, um, these kind of short comic essays. He also um, worked as a lot of writers, did then as a screenplay, as a screenplay writer, and um, most significantly with the Marx Brothers. So you can get a sense of his sense of humor if you watch Marx Brothers films, which is something that I love to do. But I, I love a Marx Brothers film, but what I really love is his short essays that are kind of On anything. They're about advertising, they're about films, they're about farming, they're about reading. What you find when you read him is that he's so widely read is that his comic essays are kind of salted with these incredible literary references. So to read him is an education, first in world literature, but also in the sentence, because his sentences... Are the most beautifully turned things I've ever seen in my life, and they're so good that I carry them with me all the time. I can don't ask me to remember one now, but I generally can recall them fairly easily. He's a really powerful writer.
0: Yeah, I think um, I think I may have even uh, mark, earmarked one of these. Uh, this is an incredibly dogged book. Now I'm sorry to say, Well, I'm sorry. I'm it means <laughs> I love it. Um, I think. Uh, Oh, no, maybe perhaps I don't have it earmarked, but I do certainly have many sections in this book earmarked. Another is uh, your you've done an essay that really focuses on George Saunders, who uh, many would uh, know because he won the Man Booker for his uh, first novel, uh, Lincoln in the Bardo, which is a quite polarising book. Many people love it and many people hate it. I particularly loved it um, and I do like George Saunders' writing, but I actually really gravitated towards this essay because you cover a topic that I'm really interested in, which is being a completist about reading writers and really getting to know a particular writer's work and learning about writing through them. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I'd love to. When I like a writer, I will become a completist with them because I'm curious about their development as a writer and thus their development as a human being. So I've read everything that George Saunders has written. And I mean, I just started because somebody gave me his magnificent short story collection, Pastoralia, in 2000, I think. And then, of course, as new things came up, I'd read those. But then I went back to read his earlier work. Because when I love a writer... I actually love them, if you know what I mean. And I think you might be the same kind of reader. So it's not just about the work. I become really interested in the person. And that doesn't mean I pursue the person. I just pursue the work. And I want to know what they were like when they weren't at their best or when they were, were developing, what it what it's like to see the progress of their work. So there's a few other... I'm just standing in front of my bookshelf. So there's a few other writers who I'm like that with, Kazuo Ishiguro, the Japanese English writer, Alan Hollinghurst, the gay English writer who's really, really fabulous to follow, Helen Garner, Tim Winton, Charlotte Woods, um, and James Wood as well, the British critic. So there are a few authors whose work I've read every word of and will go on reading every word of.
0: Yeah, I I loved this because I have to say, by nature, I am this person very much. So I think doing a book show, for example, or reviewing books means that you're quite often jumping around from from book to book, which is wonderful in many ways, but it does lack that satisfaction of getting to know someone. Getting to know not just, you know, all the wonderful things about them, but their flaws in a way you would a really good friend, um, which is how you characterise George Saunders. I thought you really like him because you've taken the time. To really think about, um, you know, where he could have gone and didn't, um, in the way that you would some someone that you really care about, and I and I think it really is framed, although you are framing it as, you know, you would uh, a piece of criticism in many ways. Um, I did feel it's that that kind of almost familial um, relationship that you form with with authors while yeah, reading all yeah. of their work.
2: And when I when I sit down to write a long critical essay about someone i don't when I was a young woman, I used to write for newspapers and I would write um, scathing reviews i'm not really interested in that anymore I'm not interested in in trying to cuddle up to a writer, but I'm just interested in reading them as they would like to be read and so I tend now that I'm old enough to have a choice about what I review, I will tend to choose somebody whose entire work I'm really curious about. And want to engage with on a kind of quite a personal level. I guess I I call it reading with the body. I'm not I'm not entirely sure what that means, but that's what I'm calling it.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful. Yeah, it's a, a beautiful way of of thinking about it. Uh, this, I mean, I don't even really know how we're supposed to get through all of this in such a short yeah, short amount right. of time because you, you raise every single one of these essays made me reconsider many, many things. Um, I, I do want to talk a lot more about a lot of them, um, but I thought I should pause to focus on um, the inventing the teenager essay, just because I thought it was a really interesting, uh, it's a return to you engaging with your students. And I should say for listeners, this book contains so much uh, personal detail as well. Um, you know, many of the essays that you write traverse um, your experience with your mum's, um, you know, her passage from from kind of finding oh, out she's ill into death um, in this really beautiful, beautiful way. Um, and that covers, that goes over a few essays that you're sort of touching on and then really delving into that experience and it and it it really connects the reader with with you and your and and what you've gone through, um, but I also thought that it's really interesting to have. I really do feel like I'm going to be recommending this as a as a manual for writers, um, yeah, or emerging writers. Your way of speaking about um, inventing the teenager has a moment when you actually touch on uh, the Hunger Games in a in a quite interesting way. Can can you sort of talk about how you've you've come to discuss
2: yeah. yeah, so Inventing the Teenager is definitely an offshoot of the difficulty is the point. It's about, um, it's about engaging with my students about their non-reading, trying to engage with them in a useful, thoughtful way. And it kind of segues into a meditation on how, um, for me, and it continues to do this, literature can actually play a role in inventing who we are. So, for instance, if you wanted me to talk about um, Britain between 1900 and 1930, I would just read all the novels written in that time because that would be the closest I could come to having a conversation with somebody who'd been there. So I'm trying to show my students that if they read literature, they can actually see movements in history and developments and all of that sort of stuff. So I, I started to think about when the teenager first appeared in literature. And I became curious about, was Holden Caulfield the first teenager? And I kind of landed actually on thinking that three characters of Rudyard Kipling's in the book Dorky and Co. are the first teenagers. But then I started to find myself thinking about what my students were actually reading. And when I asked them, they were often, and this was a few years ago, it kind of changes with every every new season of books, but The Hunger Games was something they were all reading. And my kids read it as well. So I thought, okay, I'll read it. And it's a rip-snorter, you know, it's a great story. You just can't stop. I just totally get why it's a bestseller. But I also found its language almost sort of painfully thin. Like it didn't seem to be doing anything on the page beyond telling the story. And it made me think about how... um, when I read, I'm looking at the language as well as at the story. And when I tried to sort of penetrate the language of The Hunger Games, I couldn't get far. It was just this happened and then this happened. I felt this and then this happened. And I want to say also that, you know, Suzanne Collins gave me, gave me permission to quote from her book. And I think it's a great book and I think it has a great deal to say to teenagers just the writing itself. But the thing that I thought that it it was saying to teenagers and the reason I think it's so popular is, you know, it's about um, young people who are suddenly chucked into an arena where they have to fight to the death, basically watched by the whole world. And I thought, oh my God, this is what it feels like to be young. This is what it feels like to my students. They feel as though they're about to be forced out to fight to the death in the jobs market. And watched
0: by everybody yeah i thought I thought that was beautifully expressed um here that that actually you know what you 're kind of saying is that this you know this really hit on an on a truth that that holds for For people today, so that they are really empathising with the the central character, and it's a really interesting thing because without saying it so much, you're sort of saying this is how um, a book that really relies heavily on narrative and and underlying themes can grab you without without the net of language um, really Mm. adding to it. But I think you know, as you say, if you're not reading for that, um, then there'll ultimately be a lack of satisfaction um, Mm, if you're trying to peel back the skin. And I think quite often that depends on the amount of time one can devote to reading as well. Um, I I really do want to continue to talk about this, but we are coming up um, against the clock. And I I, I did just want to mention one thing. Uh, You talk about uh, someone who was clearly a dear friend of yours, Georgia Blaine, uh, who is an author I love. um, And I found that incredibly moving. Uh, And I wanted to thank you for that essay in particular. Um, It's weird when we talk about authors with whom we feel like we have an immediate affinity. Uh, Georgia Blaine was another that I really felt that way about, um, yeah. So, yeah, oh, and I'm sorry right for your loss. She was,
2: she was stacks of fun, stacks of fun, and super smart. <laughs> okay.
0: Well, this yeah. is such a great collection. Uh, thank you very much, T and Bennett Daylight, for joining me today on Backstory.
2: Thanks so much, Mel. How about we grab a drink when I get to Melbourne next
0: <laughs> <laughs> Uh I love it. I certainly hope we'll be in a position to have a drink, but yes, let's do okay. it.
2: Okay. <laughs> See you then.
0: Thank you. That was, of course, Tegan Bennett-Daylight, my new friend uh, and the author of an essay collection, The Details on Love, Death and Reading, which I recommend to any uh, budding writers out there or just people who want very good essay writing. Uh, Coming up next, we have the co-editor of Overland who's coming in to talk about the latest edition, which... Re-examines the idea of health uh, in the time of COVID nineteen, and beyond that, even really asking questions of our of how institutions are run, how we characterize health, particularly mental health. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. The essays, fiction and poetry of this edition do not offer utopias of wellness. It's hard to imagine what that looks like now. Rather, the selection curated in this edition speaks directly to the volatile so many of us had found ourselves in this year. That's an extract from the Overland editorial, introducing an edition that seems a fitting elegy to our loss of health and wellness, reframing these ideas in a time of COVID-19 and beyond that even. Joining me now is co editor Evelyn Araluan to talk about this edition. Evelyn, welcome to Backstory. Thank you so much for having me. Now, uh, I've just owned to you off air that I uh, I was lucky enough. Obviously, this edition has not yet been released uh, to get an early glimpse into it, and got very stuck on the first two essays, which are big, big topics, uh, incredibly yeah. interesting and somewhat controversial. I would love mm. you to talk. Let's let's kick off with on hospitals because I, by Vanamali um, Van Hermans, uh, it's a it's a big topic and one that I think is incredibly important especially now to discuss.
1: Yeah, and we were so excited that Vanamali was able to write with us for this for this edition. I've loved her writing for the last couple of years and she's a really incredible disability rights advocate and so this was a really it's a very emotional essay that I think she argues really well. So it's basically talking about a kind of abolition that we don't often think about, and that's the abolition of institutional mental and physical health treatment. So kind of really just hospitals, and that's why it's it's called On Hospitals. And I think particularly, you know, right now when we're in a global pandemic and hospitals and health workers have been so crucial for trying to protect the lives of the most marginalised, it might seem like it's a really controversial time to talk about the facts that historically a lot of these institutions have failed certain people and certain bodies more than others. But I think it's also at a time when you know we're seeing such a, a big global crisis, like this is exactly the point when we should be thinking about how can we make sure that our places of care, the places where we're the most vulnerable, you know, the most um, we need help and support the most, how do we make sure that they are safe and that they are caring and they're full of support? You know, Vanamali unfortunately lost her mother to medical malpractice last year and she's exactly the kind of person to be devastated by some of the failures of our, of our health system and the continuing lack of funding for our health systems and institutions. And it ends with a poem that she wrote about her mother's loss. And it's just, it's the kind of piece that's going to stay with you and raise some mm. questions that I think we really need to talk about.
0: And I think, look, even if um, if readers... You know, don't entirely agree with the conclusions of the of the essay. I think that it raises so many incredibly important um, issues and things that are going on that are well expressed uh, and um, and incredible and incredibly important to talk about. While um, mm-hmm. it isn't the specific focus of this piece, I think it's undeniable that everyone is asking questions about the nursing care mm-hmm. system, um, given that the enormous number of deaths that happened there mm-hmm. due to um, you know the, the way in which these systems are run um how um, the aged are kept um, uh, mm-hmm. in 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 close proximity in in situations where something like that could happen um so so we, there are questions now about things that we've we've accepted as norms and I think any institution I suppose created um, in unequal systems has to be has to be really looked at um so it is it's definitely a very very interesting one and one that i um i i chewed over for a long time thinking about Mm. um it was sort of an interesting one i thought as well because it does touch on some themes without necessarily overtly doing it that could be considered adjacent to the black lives matter movement Um, absolutely uh, could you maybe speak to that a little bit because i thought that there was a real connection
1: yeah absolutely and i mean i think that's why this piece goes so well with this this global conversation about justice and really, you know, we don't necessarily think of hospitals and healthcare institutions as being a place of justice. We think of them as being a place of equality and care. And um Vanimali holds all of these institutions to the same kinds of accountability and the same demand that disabled people, that black and brown people, that poor people, all be treated as human. Um, and the the hospital, as she described in this essay, is the place where we see like this most concentrated injustice. Um, all of the things that happen on the streets, the things that happen in the everyday lives of people people that are being discussed in, in the Black Lives Matter movement, the way that some people, some bodies are, are treated um, as, as a threat before they're treated as human, she argues that all of that plays out in the hospital as well, in the site of, of, of care that these pretend to be. And it's the sort of thing that, like, I remember when I read it first and I was like, wow, this is a really intense argument to make. Um, and I wasn't sure how I felt about it. You know, Vanna is exactly the kind of person who's seen the worst of this um, and has every right, I think, to hold these spaces accountable in the same way that, you know, these global movements are trying to hold institutions like the police and and the, the you know, the penal system accountable. And I think, you know, maybe we don't think about hospitals in that way, but she makes a really good argument that it's time to.
0: I think what I really uh, found, you know, and let's talk about the the piece that follows it because uh, you really have kicked off with pieces that that force questions. um, uh, You know, again, uh, they reminded me of the, you know, the long tradition of essays to be kind of firebrands of new ideas and challenging mm. ideas. And these are certainly in that vein. And, um, and I think it, it does, uh, you know, this is overland. Uh, you're, um, you are trying to challenge the way that we, we look at things and certainly these pieces are doing that. Uh, the piece that follows it, Ignorance is Bliss, uh, by... Ignorance is Bliss, question mark. Um, yes. with... Question mark's very important, yeah. yeah. Extremely important. Um, Sam Lieblich uh, is the author of that uh, and is, I believe, uh, um, an, yeah, he's a neuroscientist. a psychiatrist. A psychiatrist, And a yeah. neuroscientist? neuroscientist. You know, this is somebody who's who's um,
1: got a really specific... You know, scientific knowledge of this topic as well, which is why you know he, the way he talks about mental health treatment and medication in particular. That was really—I mean, I learnt a lot from this essay, and I, mean, and I was a bit—I was a bit alarmed. From learning it.
0: Well, I spent quite a lot of time uh, on this essay because I was—I um, was really intrigued. He—he he lays out a case. Uh, perhaps I should let you—you you lay this out. Um, Evelyn, can you explain a little bit about what this essay covers?
1: Yeah, so the broader the broader kind of argument from what I took from this essay cuz I feel like Sam is an incredibly talented writer and we're really very proud to be publishing him in Overland and we're looking forward to a lot more of his work coming out soon. Um, the broad argument really, I think, is that our, our sort of reliance on the effectiveness of certain mental health treatments, whether that be kind of, you know, psychiatric therapy, whether that be medication, um, we don't know why it works and sometimes we don't even know if it does work. Um, it's a very complex and very contentious Effectiveness and um, that reliance on ideas of cures and and effectiveness effectiveness of that kind of treatment is. Um, potentially not as stable as we would, as we would think.
0: No, and look, I, and to, to be clear, this isn't a Scientology article. Like, he's really oh God, going, no, he's no, he really going to really to to through the yeah.
1: chemical breakdowns of some of these things. He goes through clinical trials. And this is somebody who, you know, also does in plenty of other contexts advocate for the effectiveness of all kinds of treatments, which is why I think it was so interesting to hear a professional break this down for us.
0: Well, I think what, what I found the most interesting as well is something that I think anyone who sort of uh, has a, a fair uh, association or a, experience of the mental health system um, will will ask these questions ultimately. He talks about the DSMV, how it's put together because it is, of course, an agreed-upon checklist. And the, the interesting mm. elements behind this is that he really breaks down uh, what goes into that agreement, the levels of agreement that are required for something to be listed in what is the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual Number five, um, which is what is used as the major diagnostic tool um, by psychiatry. So I think it's a really interesting one um, to read and to really process rather than to pricey in a short show. Um, But I do think it's fascinating because I think these are questions that should be asked. um, Is, you know, uh, like, the fact that I feel like we really do need to consider that we're still learning a lot about uh, what we now consider to be in some cases settled ideas of mental illness. They're still ones that are, are growing and changing and I think as the combination of understandings that come through um, neuroscience as well come into play, you get more of these cross-disciplinary understandings. I think that some of these things might be challenged but certainly this is a very, a very interesting um, uh, description by someone who's from... Both the psychiatric and neuroscience professions mm. um, yeah, it was really it's quite a read. I, there are other things in this uh, in this excellent edition. Um, Evelyn, can you please cover some of the um, of, of what else one might find:
2: yeah.
1: I mean, we really love the essays in this edition as you'd kind of you'd hope um, the one of the essays that really struck with me not just. In terms of this continuation of the ideas of mental health, um, that this issue that this issue does explore, um, but also just because it's just such a beautiful example of what the lyrical personal essay is today, is um, by Alice Whitmore, and it's called "In the Dark Place," which is a really stunning. Quite heartbreaking um, exploration of uh, of her experiences traveling while going through a, a severe mental health crisis, and it's a reflection a lot on particularly uh, Japan and her travels throughout Japan, which is you know a, a country that um, we have globally. Certain ideas about, in terms of of mental health, and in terms of of you know what we look outside outside at as being a, a suicide crisis um, that is really like that's a global crisis. And it was such a beautiful and tender mm. navigation, not just of like these perceptions and these ideas that she she talks about herself carrying from country to country. But also like how we internalize our own acceptability of certain kinds of expressions of grief, of suffering. Um, you know, what what we accept of ourselves in certain places and how cultural context can kind of shift that. Um, but it's just stunning, nearly it really, the language. Is. Is.
0: There's a line here that just really struck me. Um, Japan is a place perched at the lip of death. Few countries in the world are so menaced by their own geography. Situated on top of two so-called triple junctions, points at which three of the Earth's tectonic plates grind together like cosmic teeth, the Japanese archipelago is home to 10% of the world's active volcanoes and where there's a yearly onslaught of earthquakes, typhoons and mudslides. She just immediately situates mm. the, the action of the place in this uh, in this poetical way. And and I think it's a really interesting contrast as well to the initial two pieces that are very cerebral and, um, and in one case quite you know, scientifically disposed. Um, it's, it's a really extraordinary thing that you do in Overland, that you are carrying you know, a, a carrier of ideas, um, as well as this kind of real focus on, on literary um, output. Um, it's, it's such a huge part of things. Uh, you do devote whole sections here to poetry and to fiction. Um, mm-hmm. I believe there will be an announcement coming up um, of the, the winner yes. of, of a poetry prize.
1: Yes, the Nakata Brophy winner. We're announcing that very soon. But uh, you'll be able to read the incredible award-winning poem, um, which is our young—it's our young First Nations prize. So these are all poets who are under the age of thirty. And when you read the winning poem, I think you're going to be incredibly impressed because it's just such a, a powerful. Um, and you know, dare I say quite quite angry um quite angry poem this year, but we're um you know, we're really in love with a lot of the writing that we've got. We've worked with writers that Overland has a long history with, like Janine Lane and Tony Birch, um, but there's also some newer writers. So Zoe Kingsley has a really fantastic poem in this edition. Um, we've got a poem from Jaya Savage, which is going to be in his new collection that's being released. Uh, later on in the year. So this is this, this edition's poetry is really fantastic. Um, uh, and then we've also got, I think, some fantastic fiction. My favourite, just because I've never seen another piece like this, is Kirsten Parris' Interview with a Granite Boulder, which is a <laughs> short story told from the perspective of a rock. I
0: love it. I love it. I love that stuff. Um, I really... Would love to one day just have you on to talk about the whole edition, Evelyn. It's um, it's such a pleasure. I, I can only suggest... Oh, when, when is this edition actually going to be hitting... Um, I was going to say the shelves, hitting everywhere. Yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> not, now. we're not worrying too
1: much about shelves <laughs> yeah. in the COVID <laughs> pandemic. Um, so people should be receiving that in their mailbox, hopefully um, by the end of the week or by early next week. So we're really excited to be able to share that with people as soon as possible with our subscribers. Um, and we will also be uploading the edition digitally for a release throughout the next month or two. So if you can't get, your, get a hand um, on a copy immediately, you can head to overland.org.au and either buy an edition or just wait for us to be uploading those pieces really soon.
0: Thank you so much uh, for joining me today to talk about this really incredible edition, Evelyn. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. That was Evelyn Aralewin, the co-editor of Overland, uh, the edition out now with its focus on health. I can't believe we're already at the end of the show. It just goes by far, far too quickly. I would like to thank my guests, Tegan Bennett-Daylight, uh, who discusses discussed her latest book an essay collection, The Details, and Evelyn Aralawan, uh, editor of Overland or co-editor of Overland, on the latest uh, edition of that magazine that uh, – sorry – journal, I should say, that continues to impress with the breadth uh, and depth of what uh, it can cover in seemingly such a short space. It's uh, it's incredible. Although I have to say the essays alone leave time to really get under the skin of them because you will not regret doing so. Independently yours. Triple R.
2: 102.7